So uh, Blake kicked off a series in Zechariah without actually going to Zechariah last week. And uh, he told me I had full permission to start with Zechariah, so I decided not to. Uh, I don't want to tread on his turf. You know, he, he has marked out some acreage, and I believe that it belongs to him. So, Blake, I am not touching Zechariah, though. I will say this, and I've shared this before in this group, I know, as I've gotten older, uh, there are certain parts of the scripture that didn't mean much to me in my younger years, but I got them when I got older. And one section is the section that you guys are in, Zechariah. The major and minor prophets were written by middle-aged and older men in bad moods. So I feel like that's why, as a young man, it felt like a little too negative. Like, come on, have a little more uh, you know, joyful outlook on this. Why does everything have to be doom and gloom? And then I got to my 40s, and I'm like, world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know what? Isaiah knew what he was talking about. You know, I got into the minor prophets, and I'm like, no kidding. They were in a bad mood. They were living in a land that hadn't really honored God, and they knew it, and it was frustrating, and they loved God. So, like, I got that. So, anyhow, I'm excited for you guys to, to dive into that, because I would imagine in this room nobody has spent weeks in Zechariah, and you're about to, so that's good, but I'm not going to. I'm going to turn us to another area of Scripture that, again, when I was young, didn't mean as much to me, because I think life was just a little too easy. And then as I got, well, I didn't think it was easy. You remember when you were young? Didn't you complain, like, oh, life's hard, right? And then as you got older, you're like, oh, I knew nothing then, right? I mean... The, the difficulties of our youth. I just had this conversation with my college junior daughter, and she was talking about being stressed out. And I said, honey, you are stressed out. I do believe you. I'm not minimizing that. The good news is it's going to get worse. <laughs> and I did. I said, I, I said, uh, I said you know, it's going to get tougher. And, and, uh, but here's the thing. God will be with you every step along the way. And so as it gets tougher, he'll be with you and you'll also be a different person by then. So I said, while your undergraduate years are tough, if you go to graduate school, she wants to go to law school. I'm like, that's going to be very tough too and stressful. And, uh, but you'll look back and go, oh, to be back into college when those were easier classes and that was easier stuff. I said, and then you'll like be in your profession and you'll be like, oh, to go back to college, that was easy. All I had to do was get good grades, right? So some of you are like, oh, to go back to Vietnam, that was so easy compared to what I had after the Vietnam War. So it is in life is that some things just kind of uh, stack up. So when I told this to my daughter, she didn't say, thank you, dad. That was really helpful advice. Actually, what she said, because I've raised her and she, she's a chip off the old block. She's like, if anyone ever tells you you should be a therapist, they're lying. <laughs> and I said, no one ever has told me that. The good news is you can get a therapist, but I'm your dad. You need one of those, but you might need an army of therapists in life, but you can hire those. But I'm your dad, and my advice is a dad's advice, not a therapist's advice. So that's the end of that story. So she's talking to her therapist today about that, I'm pretty sure. So good news is there's no stigma around therapy at our church. Uh, we're in Psalm 9 today. And uh, one of the things that I love about the Psalms is that the Psalms speak to so many different facets of life. It can, it can talk about relationships. It can talk about betrayal. It can talk about um, frustrations with just the world around you. And so as you find Psalm 9, as you turn there in the scriptures or find it in your smart device, um, just an opening question. Um, how many of you feel like if the world continues on the course it's on right now, 
without any intervention or change, just continues on the course, it's just going to just keep getting better. <laughs> there's no hands up, by the way, you guys online. And there's no hands up online either. Uh, let me reverse it. How many of you feel like if nothing changes, is the course the world is on now doesn't change, it's going to get worse? There's a bunch of Why do you think that? And don't name any politicians' names, please. Let's just assume, okay. Okay, we're looking with our eyes, not our spirit. Okay, explain that a little bit more. What's that mean? So it's like feeling the temperature outside. We, we can look and go, it's cold. Yeah, Gene, again, don't mention politicians' names. There's a huge swath of modern culture that just doesn't even want God in it. No mention of God in it, yeah. It's disconcerting when a nation doesn't want anything to do with God. It's not, he's not part of the discourse. Well, the, the real question, because I'm pretty sure we don't have to twist each other's arms that the world isn't improving. Some of us might stipulate it's just the same, same broken world, not worse, not better. Either option. Um, we probably don't have to convince each other of that. The question is, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we respond when we look at the world around us and we think that is not as it ought to be? And that is one of the themes that, that the psalmist, David is you know, the chief writer of the psalms, but other psalmists that made a contribution in later psalms also kind of highlight. But this one in particular, Psalm 9, when, when I read this one, it, I won't say it gives complete instructions on how to engage in the world, but it is helpful. And so let's take a look at um, Psalm 9. It's only 20 verses, and I'm just going to read a few at a time. The psalm starts, uh, the psalm, actually, there's always that little italicized bits before the psalm. If you have the NIV, it says, to the director of music, to the tune of the death of a son. So it's already telling you that's upbeat, right? It's a, there's a, I don't know what tune death of a son is, but I can't imagine it's a lot of major keys and a happy tone. I imagine it's a darker tone. Uh, you might have a translation that gives the old Hebrew, because the old Hebrew word's very hard to to translate, but as best they can ascertain, it's death of a son, real happy stuff. So the first two verses, the psalmist writes, David writes this, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. And, and now I, I wanted you to know where the psalm was going up front before I read that, because a lot of the Psalms start that way. And in that is a little instruction. David starts, I'll just read it again, and I want you to respond to this question. So think about an answer to this. Why does David start the Psalm this way? So he says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your, all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. Why does he start there? He knows who's in charge. Oh, he knows who's in charge. Yeah, the model prayer, sometimes it's an acronym, Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. That's one, one way of looking at the model prayer, but it starts out with the address to God, thanking him, addressing, talking to him. Yeah, yeah, we, 
we sometimes think we came up with the model prayer, but the model prayer was just what we see modeled in Scripture. So very good. Other thoughts? Why, where, where, why, why does he start there? Yeah, that is true. We ought to, shouldn't we? You know, we ought to start with praise and thanksgiving. And if we're honest, it's not that we have to. It's not like if you're about to, you know, be hit. It's not like you have to, you can go, God help, you know, that, that prayer will get through. But if, if you're not under duress, to start out with an address to God in a, in a way that's honoring to God. If we had a clear picture, he's in, he's in the throne room and we're, we're approaching the throne. That, boy, that, that would maybe change how we approach prayer. Yeah, it is to to uh, reflect back to him what is due in the process. We know, I mean, he knows they want something. But that does, that's not bad because he wants to hear that. But by starting it, it does two things. It, it's honoring to God, but it, it puts us in the right frame of mind, doesn't it? You know, there's not a right or uh, maybe there is a wrong answer to the question. I don't know. I hadn't thought through all the wrong possibilities, but I, I think there are a myriad of right answers to that. But it is instructive in the crazy, chaotic world we live in to start out with thanksgiving for the deeds that God has done as well as who he is. And that's really what he does. In verse 1, he talks about, hey, I'm going to proclaim to the world all your great deeds, and then I'm going to thank you for you, for who you are. And so both of those things are real powerful, but they, they, they provide a foundation for us as we approach God. Because sometimes when we approach God, we start out from, even though we say we don't believe this, we, we have in the back of our mind, is God up for this challenge? Could God really pull this one off? Could God transform this culture? In the, in the 1700s, God used a man in England named John Wesley to bring about a complete renewal in that nation. Now, if you know your English history, England at that time, in the 1600s leading up to the time of John Wesley, was embroiled in human trafficking, or we used to call it the slave trade. They were making a fortune off of it. They were exporting people from one continent and putting them someplace else. And that was just the one we pay attention to. But they were, they were neck deep in all of that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, there was a crassness and a crudity in the culture that was in England at the time. Prostitution was so common. Uh, there were many common law marriage situations because people just didn't bother getting married at all. There were abandoned children and abandoned families. In fact, one of the reasons that in the um, English liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, you might have even, if you got married uh, at some point under the old liturgy, you might have had the minister up front say, is there any reason these two should not be joined together? Speak now or forever hold their peace. Any of you have that in your ceremony? Any of you holding your breath like, oh, please don't let Aunt Gladys speak up right now? You know? And, and if you've ever... Then, you know, I remember as a kid thinking, this is an inopportune time. I mean, I remember being at weddings, not by my choice. No eight, nine-year-old boys like, I hope there's a wedding this weekend to ruin my plans. I, I'm 50, and I'm like, I hope there's not a wedding this weekend to ruin my plans. But uh, so surprise, I would be surprised. You probably don't look forward to weddings either, right? So, um, so you, you know, in that liturgy, it was asked not because it was one last shot 
at convincing this couple that maybe they would get, you know, not make the best pair. It was in the liturgy going all the way back because a man could do business in a town, have a family, and then just abandon his family and move a couple towns over and start up a brand new business. There's no TV. There's no internet. There's no phones. You could move 50 miles away and never be seen again. You could move 25 miles away, never be seen again. So back in the day, the weddings would be a civic thing. The bells would ring, and if you were in town, you're like, well, there's no free HBO on the hotel channel, so I might as well, oh, there's a wedding. I might as well go see the wedding, maybe take communion and get in on the reception and some cake, you know. So believe it or not, people would just show up to weddings. They were community affairs. So when the priest got up and said, is there any reason these two shouldn't be joined together? In theory, the reason that existed is because somebody would be in the church service and go, hey, hey I know Harry. He, he has a family over in uh, Topeka, and he left his wife and kids. Everybody thought he got swept away in the river and died. He's right. He can't get married. He's already married, and it would ruin Harry's day, and the bride would feel sad, but at least it would, present, it would prevent bigamy. All right, and Harry would then either have to go back or get arrested or whatever fun stuff. That is why that liturgy's there. Do you, you, I mean, when I first learned that, I thought, why do we still do that? And that's why we don't in a lot of weddings now. If people wonder why did we drop that line, that's why that line was there. And the reason that line was there is because people were doing that. That was the culture of England. And then there's a guy named John Wesley who goes, you know, we have people that are affiliated with the church, but they're not acting like it. And so he created a method by which people who wanted to grow in their faith could grow in their faith. And part of that method was he would put people together in clusters like this where they would talk about what was going on in their life. They would confess sin to one another. They would hold each other accountable. They would read scripture and apply it to life. And it transformed England. That transformation led to the elimination of the slave trade. It also led to the creation of things like a humane society. You shouldn't treat animals inhumanely. That was an outcropping of the revival that came about because of Wesley. So sometimes we approach God and we think God could never turn around a culture and a society that's in such decay. And when we remember his deeds of the past and who he is, it can inspire us and give us hope. I look at our culture, and I'm not that old, but I think, wow, stuff that we used to blush about, we're proud about now. And it's the craziest of things. I won't even name what I think's crazy, because it might be the same, but you might go, no, I have a different. And then we'd spend the rest of the day talking about the way our culture has gone completely crazy. And it's easy to be overwhelmed by that and say, well, you know, there's nothing that can be done. We just just sort of cloister away and hide out in a little holy castle. And so what the psalmist does is he, he starts out, he says, I'm going to proclaim your wonderful deeds, but in proclaiming your wonderful deeds, I'm remembering your wonderful deeds. It's not just I'm saying them for, for other. Sometimes we give testimony to remind ourselves of the great God we serve, the great God we believe in. And so then he goes on. He says uh, in, in uh, verses 3 through 8, uh, my enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause. 
sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. And, and um, I read that and I'm like, oh, Lord, let it be, you know. I, I, I think, w- would you do that today as you have done that for David? And David was able to look and go, you know what? God, God has conquered some of these people. You just look at, in the 20th century, some of the totalitarian regimes that are no more. Nazi Germany, no more. Militarized Japan, no more. The Soviet Union, a, a thimble of what it once was. Can you imagine Khrushchev being batted down at the Ukrainian border? No. Yeah, <laughs> I told you not to mention names, okay. No, but the Soviet Union. I remember in college coming into the lobby and on TV, I said, what's going on? They go, they're tearing down the Berlin Wall. It's like the Soviet Union's over. And I went, oh. And then I went up to my room and studied Greek for the rest of the evening. I was like, oh, okay, it's over. Good. Well, that's great. God has, has done this. Now, we might say, well, I mean, yeah, he used he used a, a strong military from the United States and the Allied powers in World War II. I mean, England lent us a hand. It would have been nice if France would have shown up, but whatever. You know, doesn't stop them from complaining from time to time. But, you know, it, we, we can look back and go, oh, we, we did shoulder in. But if you follow anything resembling history, you realize, oh, there's some supernatural intervention there. We entered the Second World War with the sixth largest military. It was tiny compared to everybody else then. And, of course, by the end, we were a superpower. Now, we could go, well, we're just, we did that. And part of what David is doing here is he's, he's recognizing, yeah, he sent his military. He led his military. He, in, he incurred some scars and some battle wounds and some emotional and physical fatigue from the whole thing. But God did it. So, yeah, he obliterated some enemies. But God did it. He gave God credit where credit was due. That God is the king, God's the provider, God's the sustainer. So he rescues from enemies, he judges, he, um, he punishes. He, in verse 5 it says, you have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their names forever and ever. And it's really interesting here is that we, we live in an era when we talk about correcting people, not punishing people. C.S. Lewis back in the 1950s uh, in an essay acknowledged that one of the concerns he had in the prison reform movement of the 50s, and he acknowledged there was need for reform because it was abusive and, and bad, but he said by calling it correctional and not punitive, we're actually taking away something of their humanity. We're saying that they made an error, not that there was evil done, and that there is proper role of punitive punishment. Now, I don't have time to go into prison reform in the modern era, but it was still, it's worth a thought that there's a corrective side, but there is a punitive side. We take something away from a person by saying, well, it was just a little bit of an oopsie, and now once you kind of feel sorry, we can let you out. 
uh, Athenagoras, uh, he was an early church father, uh, kind of an unpopular name, Athenagoras. Not many people name their sons Athenagoras these days, but he, uh, he was making an argument for the eternal nature of the person. And he said, one of the reasons that we should believe in an eternal nature is that we have a just and righteous God. And if a person uh, had caused utter calamity and cost the lives of many people, and that person was unrepentant the rest of their life for all that they had done, meaning Christ never took uh, any of that uh, punishment on their behalf, but they just lived a carefree life as a, as a murderer, as a warrior who had thoughtlessly brought all kinds of tragedy. If that person paid for it just with their death, that would be fundamentally unfair, that they would die once just like everybody else dies once. And Athenagoras, which... I wouldn't preach this from a platform because it's harsh, but it, it was philosophically, it made a lot of sense. He said, if a person has done wicked their whole life and then they just die, well, there's not much to that. But if they live on and on and on and are continually punished for the pain that they've wrought on others, there's a justice in that. Now, I know we're a gracious group of guys here, so it does seem ungracious. But let's just say your son or grandson was a student at that Sandy Hook Elementary when a guy goes in there and just obliterates children. Would you and your grace go, I hope that nothing bad happens to that guy? Or do you hope justice prevails? I'm not saying, I'm not saying revenge. I'm saying justice. Do you trust in God's justice? And so what David is doing here is he's going, you know what, God, you are God and you have done mighty deeds and you are just and I can trust in your justice. The wicked will pay or have paid. Then he goes on. I know some of you are like, oh, this is an encouraging lesson. I'm glad. Some of you are like, I like it. I hope there's more revenge. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's all types here. But, but then he goes on and he says uh, in verses 9 through 12, uh, he, he presents God as the champion of the weak. He says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he, uh, he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. And, there, and there's something in here that I, I love verse 10 in particular, where he says, those who know your name trust in you, and you, Lord, have never forsaken those who, what's it say? Seek you. Jesus picks up that language in the New Testament. Seek first the kingdom of God. Knock, the door will be open to you. Seek, you'll find. And so here's this, here's this very strong language that the person who seeks God, the, the person who is, finds themselves in an uh, either physically or spiritually impoverished state and turns to God and says, you know, all the stuff I used to trust in, I can't adequately trust in. I have learned that it's not trustworthy. But the person who trusts in the Lord, this is a person that the psalmist says, God remembers them. You ever found yourself in that situation? I bet you have. I bet every guy in this room, and some of you have some, some real wear and tear on the tires, so some of you have done this over and over, right? Some of you, this is a, 
a familiar refrain. God, if you don't sustain me in this hour, I don't think I'm going to make it. If you don't give me the grace in this situation, I think I'm going to blow up. If you don't give me the fortitude, I think I'm going to tell people what I really think, and that's not necessarily a good thing. God, if you don't let your presence be felt in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling so desolate, I don't know what's next. We all have a story like that. The psalmist had that story. The guy who wrote a big chunk of scripture had that story. God never turns away the person who earnestly seeks them. He won't always chase down the person who's indifferent. He, he might make effort, but at some point he, he lets that person go. And so uh, the psalmist says, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I am encouraged that you will never forsake those who seek you. And then he says, uh, you know, for verse 12, for though he avenges, uh, he who avenges blood remembers, he does not ex- ignore the cries of the afflicted. And, and there's, there's something in this section that is a reminder for all of us to serve as a conscience in the community. We started out with like, what do we do in a world that's gone crazy? Part of what we do is we serve as a conscience in the community. Now, a conscience is different than a firebrand in the community, okay? A conscience in a conversation is different than the person who is wagging the finger and as the old televangelist would do, holding the Bible and telling you all the terrible things you've done. Uh, a conscience just reminds us God has something to say about that. That that won't end the way that you hope it will end. If, you, if you've been a patient parent or grandparent, you know you probably played that role from time to time. Where you remind the person there is truth. There is something that matters here. And so uh, that is a role. It's a subtle role, but it's a role that we play. Then um, before our time completely evaporates, verses 13 and 14, the psalmist says, Lord, see how my enemies uh, persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. And uh, this is where it gets real. Up till now, it's kind of been theological. But now you can kind of feel the grit of the situation. Now the psalmist, and some of us pray like this, we start out with theological conversations with God. And then we, we grip the table and go, okay, God, now this is why I dialed up. This is why I am calling upon you. And you can feel it. See how my enemies persecute me. Now he just said that the enemies got smoked in the previous thing, but apparently new enemies have shown up. And that's how it is, isn't it? Just when one hurdle gets taken care of, there's a new higher hurdle in front of you, right? That's how life is. And, and so uh, he says, have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. He, he feels like I am at the end of my tether here. Have mercy and lift me up. And, and then, he, then he does what I think it's, it's what most of us do. He, it almost feels like a little bit of a bargain. God, show up for me here, and then I'll witness for you over there. 
Uh, I, I like the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Some of you know who he is. And uh, he and his wife, uh, uh, she's very devout Catholic, and he goes along for the ride. Uh, and so they have a lot of kids. And so one of the jokes he tells is someone asking him about all his kids and said, do you have a lot of kids because you're religious? And he goes, that's not how it works. He goes, when you get a lot of kids, that's when you become religious. Because when you're out in public with five or six children and you lose one, you're like, God, I will do anything. I will do anything. If you help me find Timmy, I, I, will, I will be a missionary. I will give all my resources to you, Lord. Oh, forget about it. Never mind. There's Timmy. I found him. And so some of us, uh, that is our spiritual conversation with God. It's you're like, God, show up here, and if you do, I will finally, I, I will finally tithe. I will do more than tithe. I will, I will finally be a, I will never do that other sin again. And then as soon as, you know, and we're maybe for 24 hours, up to 48, right? We're like, but I think the psalmist, I think there's a sincerity here. There's certainly, because he's writing this for posterity. He's saying, uh, heal me that I might declare your praises. And uh, in there, there will be great rejoicing of your salvation. And then, uh, then, he gets, uh, then he gets back to the big picture again. The nations have fallen into the pit they've dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. And then he goes on, but just before we move on, I'd encourage you to read the rest of that section. But this idea that the nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. It, it, sin carries its own consequences. Forget about eternity for a second. It carries its own consequences now. And, and a nation sometimes ends up finding itself because of its own leanings in a pit of its own design. I mentioned earlier the Soviet Union. It collapsed of its own idea. It didn't work out too well. But even in our own nation, and I love our country, there's certain values we have as a nation, but without God, they turn into something really dark. So just think about just a few things. One of the beauties of growing up as an American is individuality. I love it. I, it's the only thing I know. I'm mystified by cultures that are community-oriented, where shame-based cultures. I, I find them fascinating, but that's not America. I love individuality. But without God, what does individuality become? Selfishness, right? Self-centered. Individuality moves. What's good for me is good for me, and I don't care if it's good for you or not. So that's without God. Uh, think about um, if free enterprise. I'm a huge fan. I love it. I, it seems to have worked out pretty good for the United States. It, it appears to be going really good for communist China, though I don't know what makes them communists since they seem to practice some degree of free enterprise. I guess. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But free enterprise without God, what's it bring? Greed, right? The, 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 the more accumulation for me, I protect my own financial resources and it reduces my, my charitable mindset. I don't have, I, you combine individuality with free enterprise and no God, I am selfish, self-centered. I keep everything and I don't care if you have a negative impact by my actions. Uh, look at um, even personal responsibility. I'm an enormous fan. I preach that to my kids. You got to be financially self-sufficient on your own. You can't major it. We've told all of our kids, we want you to follow your dreams as long as you can pay the rent, put food on your table, clothing on your back. 
None, no kid of mine is going to be interviewed on NPR with an $80,000 student loan because they're a barista at Starbucks and they majored in philosophy. That's not going to happen. And if any of you majored in philosophy, that's awesome. I'm not against the major. Uh, we've just told our kids, you're not rich, so you have to choose a profession for which you can feed and clothe and shelter yourself. So individuality or personal responsibility, which is an extension, that, that's a good thing, I think. But without God, personal responsibility becomes indifferent to the plight of other people. It says things like, well, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Even if I was born with a couple pair of boots under my bed. And it wasn't a hardship for me to do that. So again, hear me out, because I, I love this country. So those things are good things. Those things without God. And so what the psalmist says is that, you know, the nations have fallen into a pit they have dug. That includes this nation, by the way. We all know that. This nation can fall into a pit it's dug. And one of the roles of a Christian is to be salt and light. Now, salt and light isn't just a flavorant like salt, but a preservant. In the ancient culture, when, when people use salt, they use salt to, to prolong and preserve meat. They, yeah, they seasoned, but it was a preservative more than anything. And so we are a preservative to a corroded culture. Always have been and will be till Christ comes back. Gene, Ecclesiastes is one of those books written, written for all people in a really good mood to help bring them back down to reality. But thank you for reading that, Gene. We're in a Tuesday morning men's Bible study over in that building. There's one that meets here, too. So if you, if you have the bandwidth to be part of more than one Bible study, I invite you to either here on Tuesday morning or over in the big building on Tuesday morning. We just had, we, we just covered it yesterday. I knew, I knew that Gene not only is a biblical scholar who memorized scripture, but also I knew that was in yesterday's lesson. Let me conclude with where the psalmist concludes, because this is the prayer for our time, I think. Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. And what an interesting place to land his psalm, his prayer, but an encouragement to us as well. That we can turn to God in trying times and say, God, you're the ultimate judge, so would you judge the nations? Who better to judge the nations? Certainly, I'm not equipped to judge the nations. All the political pundits aren't equipped to judge the nations. They can't even judge themselves. But God is. God's much more adequate for that job than we will ever be. So arise, Lord, don't let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. Amen. Well, let me close this in prayer, and then you gentlemen can head to, head to lunch. Lord, thanks for this passage of Scripture. I know that uh, many men in this room and on this uh, Zoom meeting echo the prayer of this psalm. Lord, we look at a world that seems to be in utter distress. There seems to be always some opportunity to engage in new armed conflict for things to escalate beyond what they need to be. Lord, pursuing peace in a, a warrior culture is not an easy task. So Lord, it's not that we ask for peace for the sake of peace or the lack of conflict. But instead, we pray for your justice, 
that your right would be done, that that which is good would prevail, that your will, as it is in heaven, would be so on this earth. And Lord, make us instruments of your grace and of your truth. Help us be a conscience in our families, in our groups, in our communities. Lord, give us your wisdom and your discernment. We need it now more than ever. We would pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees with me would say, Amen and Amen. Good to be with you, gentlemen. Zachariah next week. And good to be with you, gentlemen. Thanks, Blake.